first you get the money, then you get the podcast. Say hello to your little friend. When we were young, the podcast that snorts the best pop culture of the 80s and 90s up its nose and hacks up the rest with a chainsaw. <laughs> I can't believe you said little friend and not little friends. <laughs> you know me. I, it's a I don't do voices. precedent that Chris does not do accents. <laughs> I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be found in a bubble bath the size of a swimming pool built into the floor of his bedroom bickering with a bitchy blonde. I'm Seth, the host most likely to say goodnight to the bad guy. And I'm Becky, and all I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I'm not going to break them for no one. It is now December, a time of year when you may look around and find white powder everywhere. (laughs) It's beginning to look a lot like Scarface. (laughs) Shall we all take a moment to inhale that crisp, invigorating, wintry air? (laughs) It's just my allergies, I swear. Every year around this time, children are told to curb their naughty behavior and be nice in order to reap the rewards of living in a vulgar, take-no-prisoners capitalist hellscape. (laughs) Children who behave well get treats and toys, subject to the whims of a reclusive old white man who lives at the top of the world and has access to literally everything. (laughs) Who then should youngsters turn to to model their behavior on, to make sure they get all the goodies the season provides? Why, role models, of course. (laughs) Men like Michael Corleone. Travis Bickle, Gordon Gecko, Alex DeLarge, John Rambo, Tyler Durden, Tony Soprano, Walter White, Jordan Belfort, and the Joker. I don't see ladies in that selection. No, you don't. <laughs> it's a shame, but there really are no lady role models. My Cruella DeVille. <laughs> Ursula? <laughs> If you're wondering what these disparate characters have in common besides penises, it is mostly murder, as well as greed and general antisocial behavior. One other thing they have in common is that they have become icons celebrated for their antisocial tendencies, usually in opposition to the message the makers of these films and TV shows intended to send. So, in our next two episodes, we are cozying up by the fire with our loved ones to celebrate a problematic yet aspirational antisocial antihero capitalist Christmas. Or... For those so inclined, a chainsaw incest Hanukkah. Or, as I like to call it, psycho killer, Kess Cocaine. Fa 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 fa. Fa la 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 la. <laughs> we are paying tribute to two of the most incorrectly worshipped anti heroes ever to hit the big screen Chris and Seth. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. They've done pretty well for themselves. Actually, Tony Montana and Patrick Bateman, the protagonists, but not heroes, of 1983's Scarface and 2000's American Psycho, respectively. Both movies that were very controversial in their day and continue to be provocative all these years later. So let's say goodnight to the bad guys, shall we? (laughs) Goodnight, bad guys! Guys, before we start the episode, I believe we have a new review. (gasps) A new review? Oh my, it's been a while since we had a new review. Hello. Mi amo es Timmy, North Dakota. Because I'm undercover, the witness protection. 
because of the pursuit by nefarious agents. But this podcast, oh man, makes me get out of my witness protection cozy blanky times. And I gotta say something, man. I gotta leave a review, man. But let me just give it, let me just set the scene, provide the context. This is a very Americanized, half Latino, but also half white guy doing an impression of a white guy. It's going Russian. Doing an impression of a Latino guy. Just like Inception numbers and layers and shit. So this podcast, I'm going to give this podcast three out of five snorts of cocaina. So like, you let the woman have an opinion, man. And women. <laughs> Please bear in mind, I am in the 70s. Uh, but, like, women in the 70s, they are an ornament to a powerful man. And if you love them, you hate them. And if you love them, you ignore them. <laughs> and they marry you for no reason. It make no sense. And your woman, she get to talk and have an opinion. <laughs> I would feel differently if I was a real person, <laughs> but I'm just a caricatura. <laughs> when we were young, it was okay to be a cultural caricatura, but now, you know, times have changed and uh, nosotros no los gustos las caricaturas cultural. Uh, anyway, podcast is okay, and I dedicate this review to Howard Hawks and Ben Hecht. <laughs> Well, thanks to Triumph the Insult Comic Dog for that review. I asked my husband, Mike, to... Snort a bunch of cocaine. (laughs) He watched the last 15 minutes of Scarface with me. And he was doing a very funny Pacino impression. And I was like, I don't think me or Seth or Chris are going to do a very good Pacino impression. So can you please record something? And that's what he said. Well, we appreciate all audio reviews in and out of character. You were saying? <laughs> Was I? Nope, I'm done. No, that train is well off that track. <laughs> After spending the rest of the year discussing Barbies, Transformers, family-friendly adventures in archaeology, aging actresses, and Adam Sandler movies, the hosts of this podcast were longing to hear the F word, see some chainsaw dismemberment, and snort a whole lot of cocaine. I get enough of that with my kids. <laughs> Especially the coke part. Or at least live vicariously through movie stars who do. So we have decided to close out the year with some good old-fashioned expletives, drugs, and violence just in time for the holidays. And what better way to do that than with Brian De Palma's 1983 opus of excess, Scarface. But do you recall the most famous Scarface of all? (laughs) I feel like I'm cheating, but I, I saw this today in the Wikipedia article that it was based off a 1920s book. And movie. And movie. There was a book. Oh, okay. That's not where you were going with this. Sounds like Becky has more Scarfax in you. Scarfax. Scarfax. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know the mo- who's the most... Uh, is it Seal? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like I just got a kiss from a rose. <laughs> I had to look up this whole book then. <laughs> Yes, long before Tony Montana was even a twinkle in Brian De Palma's eye, the character otherwise known as Scarface was Tony Guarini in the 1930 book Scarface, and then Tony Camonte, played by Paul Mooney in the 1932 gangster film directed by Howard Hawks and produced by Howard Hughes. Oh, there's the Howard Hawks dedication. Loosely based on the life of Al Capone, whose actual nickname was Scarface. 
Oh, I did not know that. The film was controversial at the time, engaging in a very long and complicated battle with censors who insisted on a title card up front that condemned the gangster lifestyle, the cutting of scenes deemed too incestuous, an alternate ending that saw Scarface arrested and hanged for his crimes instead of gunned down in the streets, and a subtitle for the film, Scarface, Shame of the Nation. Wasn't this movie also kind of known at the time for like breaking new boundaries in terms of showing violence on screen? Yes, it was banned in several cities, protested by Italian-American groups for negative stereotyping, had at least one critic claiming it left him nauseous, and it was one of the movies that contributed to the creation of the production code in 1934 that then severely limited the amount of sex, violence, and other objectionable content in cinema for the next three decades. So, thanks, Scarface. I haven't seen the original Scarface. It totally slipped my mind that Howard Hawks directed it. I kind of feel like I want to watch it now. Yeah, I've seen it. I actually like some of the other gangster movies of the time a little more. Like James Cagney is like a very famous also for his gangster movies around this time, like The Public Enemy. But it definitely has that incestuous vibe that I'm sure we'll talk about in the new version with the sister. And you, you are kind of like, what's going on here? What do you mean, catch me? I wasn't doing nothing. You was kissing him. Sure, what of it? Well, I don't like it. You're missing lots of fun, Tom. Well, listen, I don't want anybody kissing my sister, understand? You're in my arms. I don't want anybody putting their hands on you. What do you think you're doing? Well, I'm your brother. You don't act it. You act more like, I don't know, sometimes I think... Well, I don't care what you think. You do what I say. Sure, and never have any fun. No, never have any fun. You call that fun, eh? Run around with a guy like that. It's fun. And Paul Mooney is one of the actors who is kind of the version of a method actor of his time, even though that hadn't been invented yet. He really is like inhabiting the character and gives a kind of a scary performance. So it's a good artifact to check out. The versions now, I think they've restored what was the original ending, but I think it was released with a different ending, like when it was released back then, because now he gets gunned down. All of that controversy was echoed 50 years later with the remake of the film, first dreamed up by Al Pacino when he caught a screening of the original in Los Angeles. He took the project to Sidney Lumet, the acclaimed director of 12 Angry Men, Network, and the Pacino-starring Dog Day Afternoon. To write the script, they went to Oliver Stone, who had already worked with Pacino on a failed version of Born on the Fourth of July, in which Pacino would have played the role that eventually went to Tom Cruise. Stone, coming off an Oscar win for writing Midnight Express, had rejected the project when it was proposed as a straight remake, but was intrigued when Lumet had the idea to set the story in contemporary times and change Tony's nationality from Italian-American to Cuban, based around the mass emigration of Cubans to the United States in 1980, which included thousands of people considered by the Castro regime to be undesirable, many of whom were political prisoners opposed to the communist regime, as well as a number of hardened criminals. Okay, so can we talk about that? Kind of the historical framing? It caught in my ear the second I like saw that opening. Oh, I knew it would. I knew it would. Yeah. (laughs) May I get something right here? Al Pacino was attached when this was about an Italian-American gangster, and he remained attached when it changed to a Cuban gangster. That is correct. No one in 1983 cared about that. Got it. Just wanted to... Just got it. Yeah. No one cared about that until about five years ago, actually. (laughs) The whole history of Hollywood is people playing different races than themselves in in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we've we've got a thing or two to say about that later. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver Stone researched the script by heading to Miami and doing cocaine with his wife. <laughs> as well as meeting with mid-level drug dealers. And buying cocaine from them. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, straight from the horse's mouth, by the way. I read his memoir. So he says that himself. This is not a rumor. He then headed to Paris to sober up and write the script. Lumet eventually decided to pass on the project, prompting the hiring of Brian De Palma, 
who was known at the time for Hitchcockian thrillers like Sisters and Dressed to Kill, and who had just suffered a box office disappointment with Blowout. Yay, Blowout. (laughs) Scarface is the story of Tony Montana, part of the Marialito immigration from Cuba, who begins the film as a low-level criminal and works his way up the ladder to become a kingpin, while pursuing his boss's ice queen girlfriend, Elvira, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and futilely attempting to stop his sister, Gina, played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, from dating men like himself. The cast includes only one Cuban, Stephen Bauer, who plays Tony's best friend, Manny. The film was initially rated X by the MPAA. De Palma recut the film three times and still received an X, refusing to change it further until an appeal overturned the decision, at which point De Palma released his original cut without telling anyone. Awesome. (laughs) De Palma is a badass. Yeah. Scarface opened December 9th, 1983, grossing $65.9 million worldwide, making it a modest success, but not a smash hit. Reviews were quite mixed, many quite negative. Mm. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said, The most stylish and provocative and maybe the most vicious, serious film about the American underworld since Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. I'm not at all sure what the film means to say about American business methods, though I suspect that Mr. De Palma and Mr. Stone would not be unhappy if it were seen as an ironic parable. Pauline Kael, writing for The New Yorker, said, Scarface is a long, druggy spectacle, manic yet exhausted, with De Palma entering into the derangement and trying to make something heroic out of Tony's emptiness and debauchery. The director is doggedly persistent, compellingly so, but the whole feeling of the movie is limp. This may be the only action picture that turns into an allegory of impotence. And there were a lot of choice quotes about the movie that were negative that I found. Camp for the Coke crowd, pointless bloodbath, things like that. The film was nominated for three Golden Globes, one Razzie for Worst Director, and zero Oscars. So what is your history with the movie Scarface? I have never seen it until yesterday. Wow. Welcome to the other side. (laughs) Yeah, I feel very different now. (laughs) I have literally no history with this movie besides knowing, say, hello to my little friend and machine guns. And I knew there was cocaine in it, like uh, lots of cocaine. And that's it. That's literally it. So just general cultural awareness. Yeah, but I w- apparently was very wrong. <laughs> oh, you didn't? <laughs> for what okay. I expected. I see. Okay. And then I got something very different. So. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I certainly did not see this movie as a kid. I say certainly, but I'm also kind of not sure why I didn't watch it. Having seen so many of the R-rated motion pictures that we've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, it's kind of a surprise to me that I didn't watch it. But I don't know, I guess, like, for whatever reason, maybe just the sleaze on the surface of it that permeates every single aspect. Even if you've only seen a still from this movie, you can take one look at it and be like, oh, this is like a real, like, pulpy, sleazy, kind of trashy movie. But I don't know, there were other movies that were kind of trashy that I loved watching as a kid. So, yeah, I don't know. I know that my relatives loved this movie. When I say relatives, I mean straight male relatives. (laughs) Distant, distant relatives. Yeah, I know it was a big thing among men to love this movie, like it was to love Godfather especially, in like Goodfellas, Carlito's Way, that kind of thing. It wasn't so much that this was a movie that any friends of mine growing up like ever referenced, you know, like my friends growing up were all like movie buffs too. And even at that, like, I don't ever remember this movie like coming up once as a movie that like we should watch at a sleepover or like, (laughs) or someone asking me like, oh, well, like, have you seen Scarface? Well, clearly you weren't sleeping with a lot of drug dealers. (laughs) 
I guess not. I guess not. I, you, you know what, Seth? Like, this never came up in high school. That Clockwork Orange came up. That, that too. Like, like Goodfellas, but never this. Those two movies specifically, like Clockwork Orange and Goodfellas, would specifically come up. Especially in the context of like, oh wait, no, you haven't seen those movies? What the hell? Come and on, they're you like, gotta watch it now. Four grown-ups involving gangs or gangsters, like violence. Yeah. Really, for me, the first big breakthrough of my awareness for it was freshman year coming to USC and starting as a brand new baby freshman in film school, immediately becoming aware of the extent to which Scarface was kind of gospel. It was most certainly several stills and moments from Scarface were emblazoned on the posters that they would like set up to sell specifically just to the new college freshmen who had a little hmm. bit of disposable money and wanted to buy movie posters to adorn our dorm rooms. I know, like, right alongside Fight Club, right alongside, like, American Beauty, people would have posters from Scarface. And oftentimes it would literally be him sitting at the table of cocaine, like, sulking. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is it about this image that, like, makes you feel cool? What does it do for the people who buy stuff like this? I would also see a lot of people back in the day on like MySpace or the other like earlier social media websites when you could like fill out your profile and put quotes from things that you like a lot of people would put quotes from Scarface if they put quotes from any movies at all. I specifically remember people doing like the first you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the women, which in its real version is much longer than that. But that was the gist of it. Mm -hmm. It's a bit strange in retrospect that for a movie that made waves in the way that this did, that it kind of had mostly receded by the time I was coming up, but then also that it just kind of later became such a pop cultural icon, and especially such an icon among hip-hop fans in in hip-hop culture, which I know we'll talk about later, but that was an element of it that I became very aware of kind of only in my early adulthood. Posters, that that is the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this. Like Seth just said, I took a little bit of offense because I resembled the remark about American Beauty posters <laughs> up in people's dorm rooms. I did not have a Scarface poster, but I had the other cliche poster of Fight Club. <laughs> With the soap in the dish? Mm-hmm. Everyone had that. I think it was standard issue. Yeah. I think I had to pay extra to not get a poster of that in my dorm. I had Pulp Fiction and, uh, <laughs> yes. and Natural Born Killers. <laughs> Well, we're all we're all on brand and we're all cliches. That's right. <laughs> yeah, they sold those posters like the week that you get to school. Like there's a big kind of street fair kind of thing. And there's a big rack of posters. And I chose Fight Club and American Beauty. And other people chose other posters. <laughs> a lot of people chose Scarface posters. And that is how I became aware that this was one of those movies that was very hip, I guess. That was like cool to like, especially for young men. And I had not seen it at that time time but it was a movie kind of like Fight Club was a more recent version of that movie and that was like kind of an older school one a little bit like The Godfather 
So I had not seen this movie. I was aware of it growing up as a gangster movie. Figured it was a very violent movie. Maybe saw, you know, clips of it on TBS or something. I was just kind of lumped it in with The Godfather and Goodfellas and Carlito's Way as all these movies that didn't seem like they were, for me, seemed like they might be like too violent when I was younger and then just didn't really catch up with until much later. I don't have a specific memory of seeing it for the first time, but I have a feeling that it was something like a midnight movie at USC because I'm sure it was oh absolutely one of those and i would imagine that's where i saw it because i feel like i saw it fairly early on but don't have a specific memory of like watching it in a dorm room with anyone so it wouldn't surprise me if someone had you know taken me to a a midnight screening of it you know maybe with like fraternity brothers or something like that That absolutely up until now i've seen it probably like three or four times In the past few years, I've actually gotten really into Brian De Palma in general and become a big fan of several of his films, Blowout and Body Double. So, you know, I I rewatched this a few years ago in that sort of vein. It's a movie that I feel the need to check in with every so often (laughs) to see how it measures up, because I feel like its image and its fandom is constantly changing in relation to like what's happening in the world. And I think the conversation that we're about to have, whatever that is, we don't know. But I feel like it's different than it would have been like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, just because every generation gets the scar or, you know, reacts to Scarface in the way that they, you know, deserve to or whatever. Like it just it feels like it's always going to be relevant to what's going on in the world, even though what's going on in the world could be very, very different at different times. Okay, so what do you call yourself? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Yeah, just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like uh, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney. They, they teach me to talk. I like those guys. I always know one day I'm coming here, United States. So let's start with Becky and hear (laughs) what she thought about Scarface, since, as you just mentioned, it wasn't what you were expecting. It was not. (laughs) First of all, I thought he would get his scar during the movie, (laughs) during the course of the movie. But he just comes in with the scar, so... I also didn't know it would be quite so literal. He has a scar on his face. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Secondly, this movie is Face Off. (laughs) This movie is the 1983 version of Face Off. And I mean that in the way that it is so highly entertaining and bonkers and also very bad. (laughs) A very bad movie, but told crazily. (laughs) And I so enjoyed watching how bad it was. I thought it was just an insane movie where Al Pacino is doing the most Nicolas Cage version of Al Pacino, where he is a great actor. And in some scenes, I was so impressed. And the next scene, he was like batshit. And I was like, what are you doing, Al Pacino? Like the whole movie was like that. And I want to watch it again, like now. Because <laughs> like. Well, what besides the scar, what were you expecting it to be? Were you expecting it to be more like The Godfather? I didn't think it would be as good as The Godfather. I thought it would be schlockier than The Godfather, but still a good movie. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a good movie. 
<laughs> and like I think I knew that he wasn't Italian in the movie. Like I think I knew he was Cuban or I don't know what I knew, but it just it kind of shocked me <laughs> <laughs> to hear him do that accent for the entire length of a movie. <laughs> Cacarocha. I was like, oh my God, he's doing this for the whole movie. <laughs> I did not expect an incest subplot. You're not always expecting an incest subplot no. in any movie? And I didn't expect his buddy to literally get cut up with a chainsaw. Wasn't expecting a hanging by helicopter. These are things I just had never seen any sort of imagery for. And I was like, oh, that's happening now? <laughs> like... It was just so like over the top and I was not expecting that. Like it's not like the movie over the top with Sylvester no. Stallone arm wrestling. No. But I think what I also wasn't expecting was that I thought he was gonna have some sort of arc. <laughs> but he he literally just starts off the same way that he ends up personality wise. He's already like a criminal. It's like watching Breaking Bad and Walter White just happens to murder people and then the sh- and then the series starts. The show's just called Bad. Yeah, it's just bad. <laughs> Anyway, those are my main notes. I have more specific (laughs) notes, but I thought it was terrible and I want to watch it again. (laughs) Seth, uh, is it terrible and do you want to watch it again? I'm kind of in exactly the same boat that Becky is in. Heading illegally from Cuba to the United States. In fact, it is. In fact, it is. And I, I do want to talk about that aspect of it a little bit later. But just overall, Chris, like you, I'd seen this movie at least like two or three times before and hadn't watched it in at least, I'd say maybe eight to 10 years before sitting down to watch it the other day. And Becky, like you, I think it is a bad movie. Very watchable, eminently watchable. The only way in which I'll take any issue with what you said about Al and his (laughs) Pacino-tude in this movie is that The -the over-the-top screaming insanity is very much Al Pacino being Al Pacino. And I've read and heard anecdotes from people that, especially in later roles, the biggest effort on set was to try to stop Al from doing Screamy Al, because that's apparently a mode that he likes to go into as a performer. Yeah, I I think I knew that. I've seen him do subtle performances. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I know he's capable of that. This is the gateway, I think. This is the first time he does ow, ow, ow. Like he, I mean, he had, you know, moments in other movies where he gets bigger, but like this is the first time where he's like big throughout Yes. And it, to me, that very much becomes one note. I think the script is simple in a good way, just in the way that it lays out the plot more in a two act structure of just like rise and then fall. I like that. I think Oliver Stone can be a very good writer. I don't think this is a well-written movie. I think the dialogue is horrible, especially for characters who have a very difficult time saying what they really feel. Are such characters in this movie? Yeah, Tony Montana has this reputation of like telling the truth or saying what he means always, but he's always not talking about what he's feeling. (laughs) And he's always not talking about his inner self or like any of the things that he would need to be happy as a human being because there is no core to him. To me, that's the biggest failure of the writing is that there is no core to this person. He's not even a human at the most basic elements of humanity. 
and the one half second where the hand of the writer, Oliver Stone, descends from heaven to try to make him look like a human, where he calls off a hit on a rival because the rival's kids are in the car with him. I didn't find that moment convincing at all, given literally every other thing that character said and did. I so agree with you. He's such an uninteresting character because he's so flat. There's literally no change in him and he like starts out a criminal and also like an asshole and he never changes. You're looking very pretty today. Yes, you. I've been watching you from over there. You want to see something funny? Hey, take a look over there. You see that man there? Watch that guy. I got a style him. I got to watch my friend here. He's going to stick his tongue out to that girl. Oh, look at that. Hey, yo. You're sick. You see what happened to him? Hey! Hey, you know, if I wasn't a nice guy, I'd come on, come on, you took pay for you. Come on. Come on, throw like that. Come on. Bitch. What I try to tell you? Lesbian. What I try to tell you? This country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. That's why you gotta make your own moves. While giving full weight to the understanding that cultural mores about this were very different, not just in Hollywood, but in pop culture, generally speaking. He is not just doing brown face in this movie. He's not even pretending to try to do a Cuban accent. It's almost silly to point this stuff out because this performance is so notorious for its hamminess. But the extent to which he just leans into it constantly both made it really one note to watch for me. And really often kind of, I found this time, took me out of the movie. Like, it took me out of what was actually going on. Just the fact that he was so one note over the top. It didn't feel like there was a character there for him to really embody, which, if anything, kind of may explain why he reached for the kind of performative extravagance that he did. I have other notes remarking on the qualities of these characters, like the way that Tony Montana approaches love is just one of the most deeply fucked up toxic mindsets I've ever seen in film. It's almost a cliche to describe this movie as misogynistic, but again, it's like, I also don't really feel like Michelle Pfeiffer's character is even a character. <laughs> like, I don't really think that there are women in this movie or in the world of this movie kind of at all, except to just be there as ornaments. To me, it goes like beyond misogyny into hyperspace. <laughs> like, I just think that from the start, this character is a person who hates himself and wants to die and wants to punish as many people as he possibly can on the way out. So, like, my reactions watching it this time were kind of bipolar in a sense, because there was a part of me that was like, what kind of movie could this have been if there was the investment in the script, like, in the character of it, and in the real, like, pathos and drama of that, and and of the real consequences to the people around this person of someone with that mindset. But at the same time, I was also like, no, like, fuck that. Like, with all of the craziness, this movie could have been so much crazier and even so much trashier than it is. And I was kind of disappointed that it didn't almost lean more into the comedy side of it all. That said, I will definitely watch this movie again at some point. Chris, like you said, I think it's a movie that I kind of will feel the need to check in on every few years. I've seen more De Palma movies in the past, like, two years than I'd seen in my entire life. And with each 
De Palma movie I see since having seen this movie. I'm like, what point in his life was he at when he made this? Because like stylistically, it's all De Palma. You know, like it's it's quintessential De Palma all the way up and down and all the formal style elements of it. But there's a depth of character in all of his other movies that I've seen, including like Phantom of the Paradise, which is this campy, goofy Coke fantasy in the positive direction. There is a commitment to character and a kind of nuance of character that De Palma brings out of all of his other movies that I've seen that I don't really think he even tries to do in this. I found this movie very relatable. (laughs) because deafeningly loud synth music also plays in my head every time someone touches my sister's ass. (laughs) Don't say that. She listens to this podcast. She'll appreciate it. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings on this movie as well. I think it's successful in what it's trying to do, which is to be provocative and to be excessive in order to make a point about capitalism. I like that this movie essentially becomes exactly what the censors were pushing back on in the original version in the 30s, restoring the original ending of having him gunned down in this glorious, grandiose way, replacing what was demonized in the 20s, liquor, during Prohibition with cocaine, which was what was demonized in the 80s. In the middle of the Reagan years, in a you know a very conservative time in America when the war on drugs was pretty much in full effect, and this is kind of a big fuck you to that and to kind of conservative politics in general. And I'm sure, you know, it also reinforces certain stereotypes and things like that. But yeah. <laughs> the, in- the intent of it is really to provoke and to make this crazy movie that's that has all this excess and, and rubs people's faces in the greed and consumerism of America. That is a fantastic point. I totally agree with it. And I think that the idea of like making a movie just to be provocative and like just to rub people's faces in it was much more of a thing coming out of the 60s and 70s filmmakers and De Palma being one of those auteur era filmmakers. I do think that is very explanatory toward why this movie is the way it is. Yeah, I mean, because this was the Reagan years and there was a need to say some things, you know, back to society at this time, you know, and we can argue about whether this says the right things or says them in the right way, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. But I think the instinct to push back against a lot of that and, and make this movie that like you kind of can't ignore like you can't just watch it and be like eh you know like passive react it provokes something in you like you notice things about it like it's it's not a passive movie but what if they're bad things like they're just (laughs) not well-made things i also feel very numbed by this movie and find parts of it just kind of unpleasant to watch it's not always just like fun hedonistic pleasure to watch i think the script has its moments that are strong and its moments that are weak i think the characters are kind of one note like you guys have said and so like there are kind of trashy fun movies that are more watchable i think like showgirls i think is a good comparison for this movie because it also really leans into a character who is really really out there and who many would say is bad in the movie and the movie's very like extreme and explicit in the content but you know we kind of also said in our episode on that movie that that was really saying something about america and sex and i think that's basically what this movie is doing i think this movie is kind of trying to be a showgirls and there isn't that much of a difference of intent between the two but showgirls is a little more fun to watch and and just like maybe even more 
coherent. <laughs> Maybe that isn't a word that it gets applied <laughs> to that movie very often. But in relation to Scarface, I think it, you know, it maybe has different shades to it from scene to scene, more different shades than this movie has. This movie is very even keeled in what it has to say. And I like the message that it sends kind of in a in a sort of like in your face way. But you could also do the same thing with slightly better characters and certain scenes that are scripted better. You know, like I, I think you could still do everything this movie is doing and do it slightly better and still retain all like the trashiness and the fun that people like from it. So I'm, I'm very drawn into it in some ways, very repelled from it in other ways. It reminds me of Natural Born Killers, actually, in my reaction to that movie, which I admire what it's doing. And also I'm kind of like, Ugh. I don't know if I actually want to watch that movie because that one's a little more unpleasantly violent. I feel like this one's a little more cartoonishly violent, so it's not as hard to watch in that way. But I kind of have a similar reaction to the violence at the end where I'm just kind of like, oh, I'm not having fun anymore because it's just so violent. And even though it's silly, so ridiculously over the top that I don't really take it seriously, I still don't love seeing people gunned down. Hey, Sosa. Let's get this straight now. I never fucked anybody over in my life. Didn't have a coat. You got that? All I have in this world is my balls and my word. And I don't break them for no one. Do you understand? That piece of shit up there, I never liked him. I never trusted him. For all I know, he had me set up and had my friend Angel Fernandez killed. But that's history. I hear he's not. Do you want to go on with me? Do say it. You don't. I don't really think Tony Montana is this movie's anti-hero. I think he's just this movie's hero. Like, I I do think ultimately it, it glorifies, even if there's some degree to which it recognizes his brokenness. You know, this is a movie that puts forth a world that's broken, especially a world of crime in which, like, all the men who have power in it are broken sociopathic, craven, bloodthirsty. And I also don't know how much this movie intends to critique capitalism, because it seems to be very wrapped up in a white man from the 60s or 70s worldview about what it takes to really be a man, about like what it takes to hold or like find your power as a man, what it is that men quote unquote need to feel satisfied. And of course, it puts all those things like very much on the surface and very much in that kind of gloss of the gangster movie. You know, like in even saying that, it means I have to admit that this movie is like not just stupid and it isn't just one note. Like it is intending to kind of go into the mythos of gangsterism in America. And it does have some things to maybe say about the way that capitalism works, but that's not really what the main point of the movie is. Like the main point of the movie very much is Tony and very much is about witnessing his kind of meteoric rise, even though it does, of course, come with that like inevitable fall. I just wish that he like had an arc, like he comes into the movie already corrupt like, I wish there was just something where we could yeah. see his his actual change into Scarface, the boss. Like, I just felt like he came to America 
<laughs> this xenophobic opening of like, ooh, scary Cubans with criminal records. And he's already got a criminal record and he's already like willing to kill people. And it's like, where, where did that, like, I want to start before he's killed somebody. Like what would make somebody like turn into this guy? Or you could have complicated it in the other direction and like have the things that in this movie we're supposed to come away thinking that like, oh, these are the moments where he's human. But like in retrospect, there are fleeting glances toward humanity from a cold blooded lizard of a person who's just a ruthless killer from frame one. Like, I think there are any a number of ways that you could have like made that deeper. I don't think every movie has to have three act structure. I don't think every character has to have a really complicated story arc or character journey that they go through necessarily, but just like things that more visibly throw you off that path, especially if you're a character who's clearly like been on a one track path for most of your life or all of your life up till now. I don't see him as someone who's ever thrown by anything that happens to him. And in one sense, yes, that is like his, what his downfall is in the movie is kind of that hubris, I guess, and that greed. I both get what he's trying to do and I'm like, eh, that could have been done much better. I like that he is one note in a way. I don't necessarily like that parts of his story kind of feel one note, but I like that he is a bad guy with some good qualities. Like, you know, humans have good qualities. You know, no one is pure evil. Um, what except are maybe Patrick Bateman. I'm getting to it. I like that this movie is just about someone who only wants money and power. And that that and that this movie isn't like trying to humanize him. And I think the biggest flaw in the story is the scene where he decides not to kill the family. And that's kind of what leads to his downfall, because I think that's really out of character for him. Yes. But why does he want money and power? They don't say, like, Everyone why? Everyone wants money and power. But, but it's different for each person. What would money and power bring so him? So, Becky, to that end, and really to the critiques that we both made, sociopaths, you know, narcissistic people, people with what we would call now personality disorders, they don't have a greater end that their bottomless well of greed and selfishness are are geared toward. It's not it's not for any greater accomplishment. It's just for the accumulation of the money. It's just for the accumulation of the power. But that to me is a boring character. <laughs> Then America is a boring character. Yes. <laughs> no, but I think he, he's supposed to be, I think, capitalism personified and capitalism in like the American dream personified. And I think the question why is exactly what you should be asking, because why do people here pursue money at the cost of so many things and ruin many lives just to achieve more and more and more that they don't actually need. Like that is a question you can ask just of the way that we live here. And so I think he is just the face of that. And so that's why I like that he is not, except for in that one scene that I'm, I'm saying doesn't work, he's not someone who is redeemed or that's like shown that there was ever another path for him. Like the movie is just about like, okay, you're in America, you're going to follow this because this is what Americans do. They get more and more and more and they climb higher and higher and higher and they never stop until they're dead. And they marry and impregnate a woman and have a child. You know, he literally accomplishes the American dream. And Chris, I think it's much more accurate to say that this movie is is critiquing the American dream than it is critiquing capitalism for that exact reason. Because it's it's about specifically the like white male 
vision of the American dream that came out of like the 40s and 50s. And Tony Montana, despite not being white, absolutely achieves all of those, scores all those points on the board of what the American dream is supposed to be, but as a result leaves a massive trail of bodies and devastation in his wake. And yeah, I I agree. That's very much what the movie is trying to do. And I, I think the movie, because it's about an immigrant, is trying to kind of say, like, we tell people who come here to have that same dream and that, oh, this is possible for you too. You just come here and like, you can have it all just like everyone here does. And of course that dream is not obtainable to very many people who come here. And if it is, often they have to resort to you know, outside of the lawn and things like that, or at least that's how they feel that the the only way that they can get it. And I think, you know, like we'll talk a little bit more about like why this movie is so resonating with people in culture, like, you know, all these years later. But I think that's a major part of it is that what it speaks to about the kind of falseness of the American dream and how the sacrifices that you would have to make to actually make it come true or kind of the hypocrisy of it. You need people like me so you can point your fucking fingers and say, that's the bad guy. So, what I make you? Good? You're not good. You just know how to hide. How to lie. Me, I don't have that problem. Me, I always tell the truth. Even when I lie. So say goodnight to the bad guy. Come on. I think the scene in the restaurant is like the key scene of this movie and is like the best written part of this movie where Tony gives this monologue, the one that's say goodnight to the bad guy. He's basically telling this room full of stuffy, well-to-do rich people, mostly white, that are eating in this nice restaurant. He's like, oh, well, I'm just like you, but I am truthful about it. And like, I don't try and hide what I am. Like, I'm just like you, but you want to blame me for it because I display it openly instead of try and hide it like a white collar criminal would. So I do think there are a lot of ideas in this movie like that, and that this movie is a very interesting take on all of that thematically, like, I think all those themes are here and really interesting. It's sort of the more, like, by the number story that doesn't, like, as it's going along, it doesn't always add up in the same way that I think the themes actually do add up. Opposite of a lot of movies, I feel like a lot of movies, the story is fine, but then it's like, oh, well, what was that movie about? It it didn't know what it was saying. This movie right. knows what it's saying in the big sense, and it's just, it's kind of like that story that actually doesn't really work from, like, scene to scene. I think I agree with you. <laughs> like that whole thing confounded me because I'm like, okay, he's a bad guy. Oh, he cares about his sister. You're trying to get me to see some humanity in him. Oh, he's just like beating up his sister for going out with a guy. All right, I thought you liked your sister. And then she's going out with his, what, his best friend and partner. It's like, don't you want your sister to go out with your best friend and partner? Don't you trust your best friend? But no, he ends up killing him. Um, I was just like... And then also, does he want to fuck her? (laughs) Like, I was just like, this is a 
very weird subplot with his sister that ends up becoming very important because she shoots him, which seems really irrelevant because he was about to be shot by other people. It's just like there was just it just felt like a mess. I was like, I don't know how he feels about his sister or about like a lot of things with the the human side of him. It just felt like a big mess that really needed some cleaning up. You can't stand for another man to be touching me. So you want me, Tony, huh? Huh? What's your Tony? Uh, is that it? I'm all yours now, Tony, you see? <laughs> I'm all yours now. Jada. <laughs> you better come and get me now, Jada. Tony. Tony come come and get me, Tony. Come on. Come on, come and get me, Tony. We do it now before it's too late. Ow, ow. <laughs> ow. Oh, come on, Tony. Oh, come on, Tony. Fuck me, huh? I think the sister subplot really epitomizes what you're talking about. This movie has so much on its mind, but it doesn't know how to really use these characters in this plot to like make all of that like gel and like really like cook all the ingredients up to the degree of flavor that I feel like they deserve. That like somewhat incestual relationship with the sister, that's like Shakespearean shit. You know, that is like the stuff of literally classic drama. But this movie just kind of like throws it out there and in a way that almost literally feels like Brian De Palma like off screen being like is that weird enough <laughs> y'all think that's weird and fucked up huh it feels almost like a dare from the filmmaker to like titillate you it very much goes to my point about like I just don't even think that women exist as characters in this world she's someone who only exists within the confines of Tony arriving back in her life after you know, having been having been apart for so long. I think he says that like he hadn't even seen her since she was a child. Their dynamic is so creepy. And then Becky, to your point about Manny, clearly Tony Scarface does not trust anyone. He does not actually have any friends, you know, and it's like, that's fine to whatever extent. But I felt like that character of Manny also didn't really have any kind of like internal life. And I liked I kind of liked the very initial notion of them like kind of in puppy love with each other. I thought that was kind of cool. And the way that they kind of had to like play it under the table because Tony never would have allowed it. But then again, I, I think later on, it eventually just doesn't really know what to do with that. And then Becky, like you, I thought it very redundant and dumb that she shot him literally in the same scene that the gigantic climactic gunfight happens. Oh my god, how dumb are those assassins? Like, they just had to wait a second and she was doing their job for I know. They could have saved a lot of bullets. They literally jump into the window. I rewound it to make sure I saw this correctly, is that he jumps through the window and Tony is to the right of him and he decides to just kill the sister instead of him right there. It's like things like that where I'm like, this isn't very well directed. (laughs) Like, Like moments like that. I mean, I think it's also to the writing, though. I really do think it's it's very much, like, flowing from the writing. Yeah, I think The Sister is a big missed opportunity, and it, I think it's mostly 
just that these beats were in the original film and so they just kind of copy them oh, it's right. almost exactly the same what happens with the sister stuff and I think they're just doing it again but there isn't a lot of thought to how to incorporate it into this story or make it like believable in the world of this movie because you know you, you accept different things in a 30s gangster movie than you do in a movie that's it's not a realistic movie exactly but it's like it's a little more down to earth than like a 30s movie is now I'm really wanting to go back and watch that original because I'm wondering about like how much of the stuff that really rubbed me the wrong way was kind of out of just if not devotion to the original source material than just like a desire to honor it or something very similar I just hadn't even thought of it in those terms because I hadn't seen it I'm not sure about the casting of Mary Elizabeth Mestronio who I like in several movies but like I feel like she should be more or maybe it's just the costuming but like she could be a lot more like innocent looking like young pure she's supposed to be 19 and I was like that is a 30 year old 38 year old woman with a perm she yeah. looked like <laughs> Isabella Rossellini in blue velvet like she really looked she really looked like her that, she was that character should have been 15 years old because then I could tell I could understand like oh, he's protective over his little sister. Like, that's why he's beating up people that are clearly older and taking advantage. But it was like, she's 19 and they don't, like, she's out on a date. Like, what are you doing? She's very self-assured, yeah. Yeah, there's a missed opportunity to make it feel actually tragic when he, like, kills the friend and... You know, it's the whole thing with the sister, but it like this movie, like everything kind of feels inevitable. There's never really a sense that like things could have gone another way. You're never like, oh, I hope like these crazy kids make it, you know, same with Elvira. I think the marriage of him and and her, you're never like, oh, great. Like these two are off on their like journey of love. Like, oh, my God, the like that. I feel like that went nowhere because by the end I was like. Wait, what happened to Elvira? <laughs> I was like, for, well, forgot like what she even, she I was like, oh yeah, she left him. I feel like that went nowhere. And that said, I liked Michelle Pfeiffer. In this yeah, movie. She's, I think she's great in the movie. I think she's great in the movie. I think I her presence is always more than welcome. Like it really is. She is haunting from she's the first second you see her. Gorgeous. And I related to her so hard when she hated him. Yeah. Which is pretty much the whole movie. I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, girl. Like, she has some of the best lines. Like when she sees his car, she says, it looks like somebody's nightmare. Yes. Like she has yes. a lot of good, like she does bitchy lines. I, I do have to give it to Oliver Stone. Like he, he did write some really good lines for her. I have to give it that credit. And she has dignity in this movie, you know, like she's not a particularly deep or well-written character, but she isn't just like a bimbo. And I think like if with the wrong actress or a slightly different script that didn't give her as much like agency in those scenes where she's really telling him off, I think it could be much weaker. I work hard for this. I want you to know that. Bad. Somebody should have given it to you. You would have been a nicer person. Lord. You know what your problem is, pussycat? What is my problem, Tony? You got nothing to do in your life, man. Why don't you get a job or something, you know? Do something. Be a nurse. Work with blankets, lepers, that kind of thing. Anything beats lying around all day waiting for me to fuck you, I'll tell you that. Don't toot your horn, honey. You're not that good. Oh, no. Frank was better, huh?
Even saying that she has dignity rubs me the wrong way. She literally has no choice in the matter on anything in her life until she leaves him. Tony kills her boyfriend, goes to her house bloody in the middle of the night to say, like, pack your shit, you're coming with me. And that's after he had, like, said basically the same thing to her, like, multiple times. And we get, like, glances from her that she's intrigued by him. But there's no, like, relationship between them. There really isn't. Yeah, doesn't he, like... They've met like once and he's like, I want you to marry me. I want you to have my children. And I will they, impregnate like, you. Aren't they like married like the next scene? It's like, why did she say yes? Did she feel like she had to? Like, I wanted more character about her. Like, why is she agreeing to this? Because well, she's but used why, to having this Why was she with the first guy? Like, if you don't understand why she's with Tony, you also don't understand why she's I with the I don't understand her at all. But, but, yeah. then, but I don't even understand besides it being like, now I have a wife, American dream. Like, besides the most high level, like, mm, I'm with a hot blonde American lady. There's nothing about that marriage. There's nothing. And she leaves him and I'm like, okay, I guess that sequence is over. <laughs> like, there's nothing there. And that's what, like, that's why that character to me feels like a backtrack choice of, like, like he has to have a romantic partner of some kind. Okay, well, like, at least make it, like, a wise-cracking waif or something like that. I think it's because she's an addict and she wants to just be where the coke is and that's what she wants to do. But, like, I agree there could be a little bit more insight into her. Yeah, I liked... I did like that there was a moment in a montage where she's like unhappy, like you see her unhappy at her vanity. And I was like, okay, she clearly doesn't like this. Like, at least she's got depth enough to be like, I'm unhappy, you know? Mm. So at least there's that one moment. Yeah. She looks so hot, though. She looks good. Iconically hot. They have a massive jacuzzi hot tub in the center of a fully carpeted bathroom. Uh, oh my God, there was too much carpet in this movie. Sanitary nightmare. It's the 80s. I know, there was carpet but it was everywhere. Hideous carpet everywhere <laughs> i did want to talk about the broader context in which this movie takes place i wanted to open the can of worms about like immigration that'll be a brief little yeah, exactly jaunty topic i do think that this movie tries to say a lot about the american dream tries to say a lot about immigration and especially like the way that America treats immigrants. I just don't think that there's any of the follow through here to make it really stick. I didn't find that the movie successfully knew how to connect that theme of immigration. And I mean, you could maybe chalk part of it up to just it being Al Pacino. You could chalk some of it up to just the fact that this is kind of more an action thriller than like a political drama. But I took a note literally before a single person appeared on screen in this movie. The introductory text that like comes in a crawl at the very start of the movie introduces the idea of the Mariel boat lift. That was a brief window in 1980 during which Castro allowed immigration from Cuba to the U.S. And Cubans came here in obviously much greater numbers than the American government anticipated. The number of roughly 125,000 people is accurate from everything I was able to find. But then the movie says that 25,000 people at least were like the worst of the worst criminals. It wasn't just like suggested that they were like, you know, petty thieves or something. Like it was suggested like rabidly awful zombie people, super predators were right. being They're not sent sending here. their best. Exactly. And they used the word dregs. Like they said, like Castro like dumped out the dregs of those prisons and mental institutions into those boats. And so like I did some more reading and research. 
And while it was true that there were some people who were imprisoned or who had been institutionalized, in retrospect, the claims about Castro emptying the prisons and mental institutions were bullshit. They actually also were not really political prisoners. They were people who didn't want to participate in like the more advanced steps of the Cuban Revolution. And the way that Castro phrased it was saying that, like, they didn't have the character, you know, the courage and steel of their inner fortitude to be able to participate and, and help Cuban society advance. And in fact, the Mario Boatlift was really the first moment where the much poorer Afro-Cuban residents were even permitted, much less capable of reaching boats, because obviously those people were too poor to own boats themselves. But in that boat lift, they were able to get onto boats as opposed to just the pretty much exclusively white and rich landowning people who were called gusanos. Those were the people who left Cuba immediately after the revolution started when Castro first took over. But this time around in 1980, a very large proportion portion of these immigrants were Afro-Cuban, meaning that they were instantly racially coded as black the second that they stepped onto U.S. soil. As you can probably guess from the way America still demonizes non-white immigrants, a lot of the numbers and the insinuations of criminality attributed to these Afro-Cubans were really just racist presumptions. And unfortunately, the inflated stories about the Mario Boatlift immigrants were used to successfully push for more restrictive immigration policies and measures in this country that criminalized more people who tried to immigrate here later. And this movie situates this definitely white character, but in brown face mm -hmm. in this situation where really the kind of person who would have made it here in that position would have been black. And I just felt like even just that one change to the character would have situated that character in American society in such a different way and would have made all of those cross currents of the way that immigrants are repressed in this country so much clearer and so much more visceral and sharper. Really, the only hint of any trouble that this Tony Montana encounters is just the first moment when he's reached American shores mm -hmm. and he's like being questioned by immigration officials. And yeah, they have like offensive, really stereotypical questions, but none of the other systems of America, much less like the police in Florida, ever give this man hassle. A Cuban immigrant of any kind who would have arrived during this time certainly would have been subject to a lot more daily hassle, daily pressure, suspicion from any business he ever went into, much less from the police. Like these are the kind of people who would be pulled over randomly by cops if they saw that you were Cuban looking and driving. And so again, it's like, to the extent that this movie has a lot of themes on its mind, I think this movie is too single-mindedly aimed at its kind of overall focus and the, the kind of rise and fall trajectory of that plot to really involve the themes in a serious way that makes you feel something at the way that these characters are forced to move in the world, that makes you feel the tragedy and feel how doomed this man is. So again, I do enjoy the extent to which this movie revels in the pulpy, trashy nature of it. I do find it a more enjoyable watch than I used to, but I just thought it, it could have done so much more with all of these themes while not giving up any of that, you know, sleaze or without giving up the, I think even the Giorgio Moroder crazy score of it all, all of that fits. Like, I do think all those elements do fit and they do belong in this movie. I just thought there was a lot that was kind of part of the movie, but never really became part of the greater whole. Try pitching that in 1983 and see how far you get. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, though. I, I think it could have been, you know, like West Side Story was a thing, <laughs> you know, like there were immigration stories and stories where people who had 
come to America as immigrants. Even Godfather goes into that more. You know, there's there's a bit more of that in Godfather. I mean, West Side Story, almost no one was Hispanic in that movie playing Hispanic people. No, totally. And and that is that is itself a totally valid criticism. I'm just saying that like there are other movie stories that are very specifically thematic, you know, and there are those conventions in the musical that you have to hit but the fact that they are immigrant characters puts those themes into the mix in an active way. And I don't think it's as active in this movie as it should have been. There are definitely movies, like a lot of social dramas of the 60s and particularly 70s, that deal with these themes better, for sure. And m- much more realistically. I don't think this movie is very interested in being realistic. Uh, and I don't. I think Oliver Stone was slightly more interested in that. And I don't think Brian De Palma was interested in it at all. And I think that's kind of where the, like, I think the direction leans very heavily in the operatic direction and making everything more like an opera, like very broad, like not really giving you detail, but it's like, it's trying to tell this story. Yeah. Like an opera, like you, where you get just like the basic emotion of every scene and that's it. And you're not getting, really much nuance i think that's true overall but that opening crawl really stuck with me it states these things as all facts you know and those are posed as the opening facts of this movie so that is how it sets the scene and it follows it up with news footage contemporaneous news footage from the time and speeches by fidel castro so i do think that there is a very specific goal at the start of this movie to give it the kind of like truthiness of if not a documentary then like a work of historical fiction i agree with you on the like stylistic part where they're definitely they are absolutely going for like high high camp theatrical drama She's all- Can I say something controversial? I don't like the score to this movie. I think it's trash. I think it's bad. Wow. I think there were a lot of criticisms of it at the time. I don't think it's good. In fact, it was distracting at one point. They're in a club and there's a song called She's on Fire that's over the speakers, whatever, that they're dancing to. It goes on for like nine minutes. But the song, was the mega mix. The song never changes. <laughs> it is just She's on Fire for a very long time. And then they return to a club scene later in the movie and it's She's on Fire is playing again. And I just like couldn't stop laughing. It was just because it's such a dumb song and it just that's like that's the club song in the movie and also there's a song push it to the limit welcome to the limit that song is legendary now the limit I was just like cracking up. I was like, these songs are so dumb. I think it's fine. I hate it. But like, I hate it in a, this is so bad way that I'm just like, I'm obsessed with it now. 
But Becky, she's on fire. It's dying. <laughs> I like the score to this movie. I think it sets the tone. And I think <laughs> they're obviously going for something, like I said, operatic. But like before but you even see Tony Montana, you get that score. And it's kind of, it's like, this is the most important thing. And I think that's, it's like the character is like, he thinks he's the most important thing. And that hubris and ego is what the movie is about. That like, you have to have a huge ego in order to do these kinds of things and to hurt people like this. Like you have to just like think you deserve everything. And also I think even just the cold tone of the synthesizers is his cold bloodedness. Soulless, yeah. To me, it really does fit. That's, I think, why I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I have previously, is just recognizing, like, all of these elements, like, they do belong. It's not that these things are, like, totally extraneous. That score is turned up 30 decibels past everything else. Like, it's super prominent. It is an in-your-face soundtrack, and that's a set of choices. You know, like, that's a very, very, very intentional thing. But I do think it kind of elevates it for me. Also, I'm I'm kind of sad in retrospect that She's on Fire was not also used in the movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm, I'll make that supercut. Please do. Does anyone call him Scarface in the movie? <laughs> and that's why you are Mr. Scarface. I thought that would be the new... Wait, am I, did I miss it? I don't recall because i again i didn't get what i was thinking was gonna happen i thought he would earn the scar in the movie (laughs) you really wanted a whole arc for this scar i wanted an arc for the character did you think this was a disney movie i (laughs) thought we would see him getting a scar and i thought that would be his street name i bet you're wondering how i got this scar on my face That would have been better than the nothing we got. I don't think so. I like no. I like the idea that he just makes passing mention of it. And I definitely like the idea that it's not his nickname. No, I thought it would be his like street name. I was just like, oh, you're, you're, the movie is called Scarface. We don't see him get the scar and no one makes mention of it or calls he him that. He has a scar on his face. Like, what how much more? more do you need? But they never like... <laughs> But no one calls him that. Like, the movie calls him that. That's, that's the only person that calls him that is Oliver Stone. I want you to give development notes on every movie. There should be a point in the movie where they call the man Scarface. The movie's people called Scarface. Will know that he's Scarface. I thought it would be a nickname. Look, I didn't get what I was thinking was going to happen. not. You want the Disneyland to ride Scarface? <laughs> That is not what I'm saying. He needs to have a Scarface written on his forehead with an arrow pointing to the scar and then a circle around his face. Also, people are really put off by scars. Can we make it more like a beauty mark or a mole, maybe? You guys suck. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about this movie's legacy, which we touched on a little bit, but I think we need to talk about a little bit more because the movie was not a huge hit at the time and it was very mixed received by critics. Wasn't an Oscar movie like many movies that open the way this movie opened. Just, (laughs) you know, never really get mentioned again or just kind of in the annals of history. This movie is memorable. At the time, it was criticized by many for the way it stereotyped Cubans and the Marialitos. So it faced its share of naysayers regarding the tone and the violence. It has since gone on to inspire video games, comic books, WWF wrestlers, t-shirts, posters. Can definitely attest to that. And of course, many gangster-related movies and TV shows. Can I tell you that you sent video clips of the video game, which I did not know existed, and I burst out laughing. (laughs) Yeah. Because 
the uh, you know how you have like power or like I don't know like hearts uh the things that Tony has uh are balls <laughs> I believe that's I think that's when he shoots someone it says where he shot them and I think that's saying that he shot them in the balls and he gets a certain amount of points No there's literally one that says how how much how much like ammo you have oh. and how many balls and that's your life force like your balls are there more than two <laughs> I think like, so. Like, do you lose one and then two I and you're done? I think balls just means, like, how much power Is you Is it, have. like, your balls meter? Seriously, Google... Can you pull it up? Because Google I, balls? No! Or just Scarface video game balls? Oh, my God. I'm dying. Balls plus ten. <laughs> yeah, okay. I thought that was when he was shooting someone. Yeah. <laughs> they... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that is wow. so funny. Wow. Yeah, the game is not super classy. <laughs> it's what you would expect a Scarface game to be. Uh, lots of machine guns, lots of uh, various mentions of balls. It's not side-scrolling. You don't eat mushrooms or jump into large bricks with question marks on them. Have you played the whole game? And to be fair, no, I have not. I have not. I'm speaking from ignorance. Saddam Hussein's money laundering company was named Montana Management after Tony Montana. Wow. A life-size porcelain bust of Tony Montana was found in Italian gangster Carlo Padovani's home during a police raid. There was also a long-standing rumor that Blink-182 got the 182 from the number of times fuck is said in the movie Scarface. However, the actual count seems to be 226, so this has been debunked. Take that, Blink. I think they were just fucking with people when they kept... I'm sure. Right. I'm Blink sure. doesn't seem like the Scarface quoting type of no. band. I think they do. Really? No, I think they would have done like Revenge of the Nerds or like something like that, you know? Let's see them as I a mean, they, they are the ones who made up that rumor, but I think they just lied. Right. I don't, because I think that's ridiculous for yeah. them. Dozens of hip hop artists have rapped references, including Chief Keef, Notorious B.I.G., Lil Wayne, Common. There are also songs by Nas, The World Is Yours, Soldier Boy, Scarface, and Future featuring Drake. The song Tony Montana, which is basically just him saying, Tony Montana on repeat. Did you listen to that? And Tony Montana. I listened to it enough to know that it's not for me. I listened to enough of all of the songs you linked. Uh Yeah. I think it's easy at least for me to see why he has become a hero to a lot of people or is at least kind of view- an icon i guess is a better word than a hero in in, in hip-hop culture especially because he starts you know this movie without a lot of means or opportunity and he transcends that and sh- achieves like a real kind of power and i think it's hard to say like on the one hand i get it and on the other hand it's a really bad role model <laughs> He's a role model in how people fantasize about having his balls, his like confidence that he's not like weak, that, you know, like I think that a lot of people, men feel emasculated by their station in life because of America or wherever they live, that they're because of capitalism, because of capitalism or their government or their country emasculates them. They aren't able to have power or provide for their family or have the things in life that they want. 
And it is a fantasy to see somebody have that unapologetically and be a badass. So even though he like dies in the end, people don't walk away from this movie thinking, well, I shouldn't do that. They won't do it. Most people aren't going to like get machine guns and do that. It's just fun to fantasize that to live it up like that. Oh, yeah. I felt especially grateful rewatching it this time, like really much more quickly and intuitively understanding why hip hop culture embraced this movie so deeply. For that exact reason, Becky, is is the fantasy of it. Because, you know, hip hop culture is speaking to a community that is not only kept from power, but like, a community where all the systems and existing public institutions destroy and dismantle families. They destroy communities. They especially destroy men by throwing them in jail constantly all the fucking time. So it offers a vision of not just power, but of liberation from a set of circumstances that is like systemic and existential and inescapable in real life. And in hip hop, like the overall idea that cuts across a lot of the genres within hip-hop is about empowerment and liberation. So, like, in in retrospect now, I'm like, well, of course that was going to be a huge, like, almost like a folk hero, Johnny Appleseed or some shit for, for people who are really into that, that kind of cultural expression. Yeah. Like in the end of this movie, Tony's shot like 85 times. <laughs> he's still right. standing. And he's like not even knocked over. He's like still screaming. <laughs> And it is, I think it's this like macho gangster fantasy where like, if you go into a life like that, you do have to have that kind of denial and think that you could be bulletproof basically. And even though he does eventually die, it takes so much that he like, (laughs) he achieves this kind of like almost superhero status by like withstanding as many bullets as he does and still like able to like say like fuck you at the end Mm -hmm. you know he's like very righteous when he's dying and he's still insulting people and (laughs) you know it's like it's it's he's never weakened even though he dies is like he still goes out on top and i think that's the fantasy you have to believe in to even if you were to emulate tony which most people are not going to do but even for those who would or do in some ways like i think that you have to believe that you're gonna kind of have this immortality that he has in this like grand glorious moment in the end. Yeah. yeah and and you also have to believe that you can individually accomplish that. Like mm-hmm. it very much is like a story of going it alone entirely. And it's a story that you can't trust anyone else. I find that like really fascinating to think about in like the context of hip hop culture and the way that America has addressed like black life and black community life. And yeah, I mean, like we can't go into that in this cause we don't have time, but like it's, it was, it was really just fascinating rewatching this movie from like a 2023 perspective and thinking about the ways that a lot of these themes still haven't been fully thought through and addressed in American society. But I will also say like Chris, to your point, I think people mostly draw the wrong lessons from this But I think they draw them for completely understandable, rational reasons. Yeah, I think the movie is about having it all and how having the American dream, even for a very, very brief time, which it feels like, I mean, maybe this movie takes place over years, but it doesn't even feel that long. It feels very brief. And having that for as as brief as you have it is better than longevity. And there's this idea that Tony is honorable. Like he says it often and he says it about himself. Yes. 
And yet he really like kills his best friend for no good reason, gets his sister murdered, is be- a drug be- dealer. Beats up his sister. Not the best role model, actually. But like <laughs> when you think about 1983 and, and the kinds of other role models who would have felt accessible to that audience back then and, and in the years since then, it's like there weren't other ones. And so, of course, they went to Tony, even though he is like not even played by a real Latino person, is played by Al Pacino. And this movie really reinforces a lot of what the stereotypes were that like, like these communities, like everyone was into drugs and, and killing each other. And, and that still persists as a stereotype, but especially in like the 80s. And so this movie like definitely revels in that and definitely doesn't do anything to dispel that. But because this is the only one or one of very, very few at the time that like showed someone rising above these conditions and having what white heroes would have in other movies, you know, what they would get rewarded with in the end of the movie. So it, like it does make sense that people people would have gravitated toward this movie because it was one of very, very few movies that showed an arc like this for a character like that. And so, yeah, I guess it would be kind of hypocritical to say like, oh, they shouldn't worship this guy because what else did we give them, you know, well, and even, to worship? Even to your point earlier that we haven't really talked much about like the Reaganomics of it all, a huge mental shift in all of American society that happened at that time was the the yo-yo idea, like you're on your own. Like the government was not going to help you. So like it wasn't even just like one community that kind of internalized that message. That was a real like consciousness shift across all of America at that time. And, you know, like, I think to their credit, for to Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma's credit, like I do think it is critiquing that and showing where that mentality leads you. Yeah. In general, I think this is a really good depiction of the American dream because it's not just the kind of standard one you see. It's like it's going from nothing to too much. And Mm -hmm. the movie is too much. And it like emulates that. And that's one of the reasons I really like like The Wolf of Wall Street, which is another movie that I kind of feel like is in the vein of this so excessive to make a really big point. And I do think it's like just relatable to a lot of people, you know, because like there's the whole fantasy of getting revenge on your boss. Like, you know, better than your boss. And like everyone has the fantasy of of like telling your boss off or like you're going to rise above your boss and like they're going to see that you were actually valuable all along. There are all these fantasies. People from all kinds of walks of life can still kind of look at Tony Montana and like still take some pleasure in like little moments, even if we're kind of put off by them as well, because he's actually murdering his boss. And that's probably not what most of us want to do, actually. (laughs) Well, and we also want there to be that person who goes out and does the bad thing, either on our behalf or does it because we can't do it. Mm -hmm. And the character of Tony has such an utter lack of caution that I think he's like a fun person to live through. Like even in most of these other like anti-hero movies, they have some kind of sense of like self-preservation and he has none. He's just like, Mm -hmm. he's He's all id. He's all id. That's right. It's not even ego. Yeah. Yeah. And like for people who are like always overthinking like probably most of us are. It's kind of nice to, I guess, live through this guy who just like doesn't think about anything. And that's all the cockroaches we have time for in this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode, we'll be continuing this series and looking at a maybe even more problematic anti-hero in Patrick <laughs> Bateman in American Psycho. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And rate and review us so that more people hear the show. 
You can contribute on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can bring you more episodes for free. I have been Seth. I'm Chris. And say goodbye to my little friend. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> goodbye.